So the topic of the symposium as a whole is the role of morality and moral judgments in our legal system, particularly in the interpretation of the Constitution. And this panel will focus specifically on how these questions play out in the context of the First Amendment's protections for free speech. Uh, Broadly speaking, the question that we're going to focus on is to what extent can societal judgments of morality be recognized by law when they implicate what people read and watch and hear? Uh, Are these laws expressions of valid majority preference or are they violations of the First Amendment? Uh, A topic which is traditionally, although not exclusively, played out in the context of obscenity law. Uh, There's a very distinguished panel here today and I'm going to introduce them in the order that they're going to speak in and then I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, The first speaker is Phyllis Schlafly, uh, who's been a major figure in the conservative movement for over 40 years. Uh, She is most famous for leading the opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, and she's the editor or author of more than 20 books. Uh, Next, Andrew Koppelman is a professor of law and political science here at Northwestern. He's the author author of more than 50 articles on topics including religious liberty, obscenity law, democratic theory, and the meaning of neutrality in law. Uh, Next will be Jeffrey Stone, professor of law and former dean at the University of Chicago Law School. He's the author of many books and articles on constitutional law. His most recent book is Perilous Times, Free Speech in Wartime from the Sedition Act of 1798 to the War on Terrorism. Uh, Last will be John McGinnis, a professor of law here at Northwestern. He's a very prolific author in areas of constitutional law and international law. The subjects of his scholarship include originalism and the role of foreign and international law in the interpretation of U.S. law. Uh, So we will begin with Mr. Schlafly. Mr. Chairman, and good afternoon, students. In the preceding panel, we heard a lot about the alleged bad effects of the government trying to impose morality. Uh, My talk is about the bad effects of the Supreme Court imposing immorality. What has greater First Amendment free speech rights than political campaign speech, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Ten Commandments, and the Boy Scout Oath combined? The answer is pornography. Since the Earl Warren Court of the 1960s, no single side of any issue has racked up as high a winning score in the Supreme Court as pornography. Time was when the American people themselves were well able, without resort to government or litigation, to maintain a society of decency. There used to be no porn in the neighborhood movie theaters or in popular music. And of course, television and the Internet didn't exist. We did not need government action because Hollywood did its own regulation. The Hollywood Production Code, known as the Hayes Office, reviewed movie scripts and banned sex, nudity, and profanity. Their efforts were mighty good for business. More people went to the movies in the 1940s than today. In the first obscenity case to reach the U.S. Supreme Court, Roth versus United States in 1957, the majority ruled, we hold that obscenity is not within constitutionally protected speech or press. Another way of saying this is that obscene performances are not speech, and obscene publications are not press as those terms are used in the First Amendment. 
In this majority decision, the court said it was merely declaring what was clearly assumed by many previous decisions and laws going back to the 1770s. The pornographers then plotted to overturn this decision. Their legal strategy is all laid out in a book written by a high-priced porn lawyer, Charles Rembar, called The End of Obscenity. He devised a legal argument to get Justice Brennan to change his rule. Rembar took Brennan's definition in the Roth case of obscenity as utterly without redeeming social importance and persuaded him to put the utterly phrase in a different part of the sentence. The new legal test then became pornography can be banned unless it is found to be utterly without redeeming social value. Rembar got Brennan to adopt this extraordinary piece of semantic chicanery in the next obscenity case in March 1966, Memoirs versus Massachusetts, known as the Fanny Hill case. Social value became the password to get the Supreme Court to approve pornography. Brennan was joined in this pro-porn decision by Justices Black and Douglas, who had always argued that all pornography is constitutional, and also by Justice Abe Fortas, who had just been appointed to the Supreme Court by President Lyndon Johnson. Abe Fortas, whom you don't read much about in your law books, had been President Johnson's personal lawyer, and in private practice, Fortas had been an attorney for pornographers. All of a sudden, the porn peddlers dramatically increased their output and invested lavish funds for legal talent to carry dozens of cases to the Supreme Court. By the fall term in October 1966, the Supreme Court was flooded with 27 appeals from lower court convictions. It shows the great financial resources of the porn industry, their determination to change our culture that had been in existence for hundreds of years, and their optimism that this could could be accomplished by the Earl Warren Supreme Court with activist liberal justices Warren, Fortas, Brennan, Black, and Douglas adopting the pornographer's most extreme arguments. In the short space of 13 months, May 1967 to June 1968, the Warren Court handed down a series of 27 decisions that turned the law of obscenity upside down. It is absolutely astonishing that the Supreme Court granted cert and decided 27 Supreme Court cases from one industry in only 13 months. These decisions elevated pornography and other assaults on decency to the level of a First Amendment right. The Supreme Court reversed dozens of judges, juries, and appellate courts in 15 states, making laws against obscenity impossible to enforce and thereby drastically lowering community standards throughout the United States. Those Supreme Court decisions prove uh, Judge Robert Bork's conclusion that the suffocating vulgarity of popular culture is in large measure the work of the Supreme Court because it defeated our attempts to minimize vulgarity. This avalanche of pro-porn decisions started with Redrup versus New York, a case about a book published by a wealthy publisher of lewd magazines named William Hamling. He financed this case with $100,000, a lot of money, in 1966. The most shocking part of this history is that Hamling had been Abe Fortas's client.
Hamling had boasted that he hired Fortas as his attorney because Fortas could fix anything no matter who was in power. In this crucial Redrup case, Fortas did not recuse himself, but voted to reverse the conviction of Mr. Redrup for selling an obscene book published by William Hamling. Fortas is not noted for writing opinions, but his friends described him as determined to use his powerful mind to dominate critical areas of the court's decision and opinion-making processes. Most of the other pro-porn Supreme Court decisions simply cited Redrup as the reason for reversing lower court decisions. Nearly all those other pro-porn decisions consisted of just one or two sentences. The justices called this giving obscenity cases the Redrup treatment. For example, the case called Mazes versus Ohio reversed the decisions of the Ohio Supreme Court, the Ohio Court of Appeals, the trial judge, and jury in one single sentence, quote, the petition for a writ of certiorari is granted and the judgment of the Supreme Court of Ohio is reversed, Redrup v. New York, close quote. That is the entire Supreme Court opinion. In most of the pro-porn decisions, the court granted cert and reversed the lower courts at the same time, which means the, courts didn't, the court did not bother to hear oral argument. There are two other interesting factors about these 27 decisions, plus seven additional decisions the following year, making a total of 34 pro-pornography decisions handed down by the Earl Warren Supreme Court. They were all per curiam, and they were all anonymous. The, courts, the justices could not defend the obscenity they were clothing in the First Amendment. Not a single judge, justice had the nerve to put his name on a single one of those 34 decisions. That enabled the court to conceal from the public the substance of what the court was approving. You must search out the lower court decisions to see what gross obscenities the court was wrapping in the First Amendment. The public was kept in the dark, but the justices knew exactly what they were doing. Bob Woodward's book, The Brethren, reports that the Supreme Court held movie days when the justices and their clerks would watch pornographic films involved in these cases. Hollywood got the message, and the Motion Picture Association stopped enforcing its own production code. This new freedom brought obscene language, near-total nudity, graphic sex scenes, and violence to neighborhood movie theaters. When Chief Justice Earl Warren announced his resignation in 1968, President Johnson nominated his buddy, Abe Fortas, to be Chief Justice. In a dramatic confirmation battle, the Senate rejected Fortas's promotion to Chief Justice, primarily because of his conflict of interest involving pornographers. The senators were shocked when they viewed the pictures and videos of the obscenity that the Warren court had wrapped in the First Amendment. As Democratic Senator Frank Lauschke claimed, said, if the nominee were my brother, I would not vote for him. Not only was Abe Fortas not confirmed as Chief Justice, he later resigned from the court in disgrace, and his own law firm that he had founded would not even take him back. Fortas, Warren, Brennan, Black, and Douglas are gone now. But in Shakespeare's words, the evil that men do lives after them. 
the Supreme Court continues to treat pornography as a privileged industry. In the last five years, the Supreme Court has wrapped the First Amendment around obscenity in libraries, computer-generated child pornography, and unlimited Internet pornography, and overturned all our cleanup efforts. As Judge Bork said, the suffocating vulgarity of popular culture is in large measure the work of the Supreme Court because it defeated our attempts to minimize vulgarity. Thank Okay, well, I should uh, start by saying how pleased I am uh, to be on this panel, and in particular, I was absolutely delighted to learn that I'd be on this panel with Phyllis Schlafly, whose work I've read with great interest for 20 years. And I should say, as I need to identify myself as a left-leaning, redistributionist, feminist, pro-choice advocate of gay rights, I'm a big fan of Phyllis Schlafly, and uh, I think that she has very important things to say views need to be taken seriously and at the conclusion of this panel I'm going to ask her to autograph my copy of The Power of the Positive Woman. Schlafly's preeminent concern is to prove and I'm go, what I'm going to do is uh, I've in preparing for this, I tried to read everything that I could get my hands on that she had written about pornography, and what I'm going to try to do is, I'm going to say a little bit more about, she said other things that she didn't say today, I'm going to say what those are, and I'm going to try to respond to them, and I'm going to try to say what's valid and what's not in the view that she's presented. Her preeminent concern has been to preserve a pattern of gender-specific roles and relations that she thinks have helped protect women and children from desertion and abuse. And this has been what she's been best known for and what her preeminent accomplishments have been. She's single, really single-handedly responsible for keeping the Equal Rights Amendment out of the Constitution. So she's really, she is the only person in this room who is already in the standard American history textbooks. And it's a big room and there's a lot of us here. This gives rise to a number of derivative concerns, and the one that interests me here is a worry about a vernacular masculine culture that's indifferent or hostile to the needs of women and children. And this, I want to argue, is a legitimate and valid concern, and Schlafly is absolutely right to raise it. But I want... And Pornography is a part of that. We need to be concerned about the message that pornography sends. So I'm really willing, I want to say, we really should go a long way down the road with Mrs. Schlafly, but I part company with her at the end. I think that the suppression of pornography by the state is the wrong solution to this problem. So the her preeminent concern is with the message of porno pornography. She's written, pornography changes the perceptions and attitudes of men toward women, individually and collectively, and it desensitizes men so that what was once repulsive and unthinkable eventually becomes not only acceptable but desirable. Uh, the, what was once mere fantasy becomes reality, thus conditioned and stimulated by pornography, the user seeks a victim. Now, 
if this is taken to imply that pornography inflames violence against women, I think that claim is wildly overstated. Uh, we've got good data on this. Uh, I've got an article in Columbia Law Review that reviews it, uh, except for a very small subset of already pathological men, fewer than 1%. Consumption of pornography is not associated with violence against women, and it appears that in the aggregate, the availability of pornography actually reduces the frequency of sexual assault. It's true that women have been often been abused during the production of pornography. Mrs. Schlafly has edited a book with stories of that abuse, and it's unquestionable that it's happened, but abuses of that kind are ubiquitous in illegal markets. I think Marcus Cole already made this point, and it appears to be much less common now that producers are permitted to operate openly in some parts of the country. But there's a deeper concern here that's worth investigating. Violence is not the only way in which men abuse women. A lot of American men behave very badly, and that behavior has something to do with the way in which they're socialized in the culture in which they're raised. So the real and important concern is not the effects of pornography, but the meaning of pornography, the way in which it changes the culture. And it's possible for the law to intervene in culture in order to change uh, toxic vernacular male culture. Uh, now, Schlafly comes out of a couple of traditions. Uh, one is uh, the anti-feminist thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, in uh, Book 5 of the Emile, who argued that it's necessary, if, if Rousseau thought the basic problem for society, he says this in the Discourse on Inequality, is that human beings are vain. They want other people to defer to them. And so the problem is, how do you get people to live together when everybody wants to lord it over everybody else? One solution is the social contract, where everyone gets to participate in lawmaking. But he thought there was a particular problem in the relations between the sexes, because women get pregnant, and they would raise children with difficulty without assistance. And so that means that, uh, as uh, Rousseau says, uh, men depend on women because of their desires. Women depend on men because of both their desires and their needs. Rousseau thought the answer to this is for women to make men feel like they are in authority, to gratify their vanity and their desire. And the value of this is that this gives men an interest in women, which is not just the momentary sexual interest, but a longer-term interest. And, uh, it, and because women are the ones who are bringing about this result, and they need to be quite conscious about bringing about this result, we end up with a solution in which everybody's vanity is satisfied. He thinks he's the boss, and she knows she's the boss. The other uh, notable source of Schlafly's thought is the 19th century ideal of separate spheres for the sexes, and she relied on this quite heavily in the campaign against the Equal Rights Amendment. And here, the, the innovation of the 19th century idea of domesticity is that uh, it's the vulnerability of women uh, is contingent on culture. It's important to have a culture that is responsive to and protective of women's interests. And actually, this feeds into the uh, topic of the last panel. Uh, one of the most potent of the domesticity-based social movements of the 19th century was prohibition. And prohibition was not just about alcohol. Uh, the saloon was a distinctive kind of institution in the late 1800s. It encouraged heavy drinking. Saloons were typically associated with prostitution. They encouraged the practice of treating, in which a patron was put under considerable moral pressure to buy a round of drinks for the whole house. 
And uh, so the consequence was that uh, husbands would go to saloons, and they, particularly on payday, and they'd come home on payday without any money but with syphilis. So this was not a matter of uh, people, you know, meddling into uh, the affairs of other people. It was entirely a self-defensive movement. Women were trying to defend themselves with the movement against prohibition, and it was a success. The saloon was basically crushed by prohibition. It was replaced by speakeasies, but speakeasies couldn't operate openly and notoriously. There were a lot less of them. Prohibition did reduce drinking in the United States by somewhere between a third and a half. And after prohibition was repealed, the saloon never came back in its own form. Alcohol producers consciously avoided the excesses that had ruined their public image in the past. And today they spend millions of dollars to promote responsible drinking. They're very attentive to uh, this concern. But I, another lesson that I want to take away from this is that the problem is not the molecule alcohol. The problem is the particular social formation that existed at the, in the late 1800s. Actually, Americans drank a lot more at the beginning of the 1800s than they did at the end. The difference was that at the beginning of the 1800s, they drank about three times as much, but it was all constrained by heavy social controls. Uh, alcohol itself was never the problem. Okay, so pornography. Uh, the, uh, The, the pornography, it was really the same problem. The concern is that there is a masculine culture being conveyed by pornography in which m women are mere objects of consumption whose own feelings and desires don't matter. And there's no question that that idea is out there in American culture. There's a lot of it, and it's enormously destructive, and pornography is one of the means by which that idea gets disseminated to the next generation. That's a real problem. Uh, and uh, there's no question that uh, one of the things that uh, produces that is a male culture in which women are of interest primarily as trophies with which to impress other men. So I think the concern about pornography that I read in Schlafly's work is essentially analogous to the 19th century concern with the saloon. There's an institution that socializes men into feelings and patterns of behavior that are destructively indifferent or even hostile to the well-being of women and children. But there's an important disanalogy between the saloon and pornography. The saloon was a well-organized set of customs associated with a specific set of destructive behaviors. The only behavior that specifically attaches to pornography is solitary masturbation, and it doesn't spread disease, and it doesn't get you pregnant. So, uh, and it's true that this can be connected with the internalization of attitudes that are damaging to women, but the connection's a good deal more contingent and tenuous than she's claimed. It's less like the institution of the saloon and more like the chemical alcohol, the social meaning and effect of which is extremely variable. Now, if you want... So if you wanted a litmus test for what's the bad pornography we're worried about, you'd have to say, well, it, I think that it conveys a view of the world that regards people, usually women, as mere objects of sexual interest whose feelings and desires don't matter. But it's not the case that any publication that exists for the purpose of getting its audience sexually aroused, and I'll use that as my working definition of pornography, has that message in it. There's enormous variation in the pornography that's out there, much more in the age of the Internet when so many more people produce it. 
So, and what you get in place of it, uh, and when the law gets into this, the law isn't able to look at the message being conveyed at all. In fact, there'd be a First Amendment problem with doing that because it would be viewpoint discrimination. Instead, we ask really crude questions like, did you show naked breasts? Which has just got nothing to do with the underlying concern, or is it there to appeal to the prurient interest? The problem isn't the prurient interest. The problem is a malign attitude toward women. If people couldn't have their prurient interest aroused, the human race would cease. Uh, so I think that it's a mistake to generalize from single instances to some large undifferentiated mass of pornography. There's just too much variation out there. And it's complicated by the fact that different narratives have different meanings to different people. Uh, one of the things that Freud has taught us is that uh, the overt and latent content of fantasies, sexual or otherwise, are likely to be very different from each other because they operate at a quasi-infantile level of consciousness, uh, where moral judgment is at least misplaced. Nancy Friday's studies of women's sexual fantasies found that rape scenarios were exceedingly common. They absolved women of guilt because uh, the sex that occurred wasn't their fault. The women who had these fantasies had no interest whatsoever in being raped. That wasn't what it was about. And I think the disproportionate importance of latent content in pornographic texts really complicates the effort to discern the fixed norms in those texts. So I conclude that law is really the wrong tool for this job. Uh, and the proposal to allow local juries, Mrs. Schlafly has written, she should, they should have full rights to make the final determination as to what's obscene so that art and literature would get no protection at all under the First Amendment is a mistake. And it's been very badly used in this country. The old Comstock laws that prohibit explicit depiction of sex would have banned the sex articles in Cosmopolitan, which is essentially a Rousseauian trade publication for women, uh, which is full of advice on how to use sex to get your boyfriend to marry you. That's what it is. Uh, these are, of course, the very women whom Schlafly wants to help engaging the very kinds of strategies that she's recommending. Uh, so, uh, but if censorship is a bad idea, and I'll end with this, moral criticism of pornography is an urgent necessity. And here I'd like to end with a lament about the state of discourse on this subject. Today we're having a serious discussion of pornography, but it's no coincidence that this is a law school and this is a panel about law. Too many of the serious discussions about the moral import of pornography take place in the context of proposals to criminalize it. Criminalization is a mistake, but discussion of pornography's moral import is urgently necessary. Thank you. Uh, I was intrigued by Mr. Schlafly's use of words like immorality, indecency, vulgarity, evil. I've been thinking a lot about sex lately. <laughs> I really have. Um, and I've been wondering why it is that we associate certain sexual conduct or images or expression with immorality, indecency, vulgarity, and evil. Given all of the problems in the world, it seems to me there are much better things, much more important things, 
to which to attach such labels. So I've been wondering, why is it that we think about sex in general and obscenity in particular through this lens? And how do we know that some things are appropriately labeled vulgar or immoral or evil or indecent in this context? How do we know that the way two people make love or if they make love or if they watch somebody else making love, that that's evil or indecent or immoral? Now, I, I want to do a an experiment with you. I want to imagine the following question. Suppose that we have not a doctrine of obscenity. It simply doesn't exist. And our First Amendment law, First Amendment jurisprudence, is as it is today, simply without the doctrine of obscenity. And someone would propose, I've got a good idea. We should make obscenity illegal and we should find a way to incorporate that into our First Amendment jurisprudence in a way that is consistent with basic First Amendment principles. So I'd ask that person, okay, well, why? What would be the reason for wanting to do that? And probably they'd start by saying, well, obscenity is harmful. Obscenity has bad consequences. If we allow it, it will tend to cause some individuals who are exposed to it to engage in bad behavior. Some people may engage in rape or sexual assault. Some may act as pedophiles. Certainly might be true. Or they may say, well, it'll cause people to have bad values. They will act in ways that maybe are discriminatory towards women or that are insensitive to certain harms that people suffer. Or maybe it'll just make them immoral. They'll, they'll decide to do things themselves consensually that we think they shouldn't do. I mean, they may have oral sex. They may have anal sex. Might not have occurred to them before. Well, maybe it wouldn't have seemed appealing to them before, but they might now decide to do that. The answer we would clearly give to that argument would be, well, yeah, but under the First Amendment, as we understand it, you can't prohibit expression because it may have some tendency to cause some people to behave in any of these ways or to have values that the rest of us don't like. That's been unimpeachably clear in the Supreme Court for quite some time. And most of us, I suspect, wouldn't want to overturn that pretty fundamental principle. So if that's your objection, then what's the big deal? Yeah, we deal with that with counter speech or, or we, we deal with it with criminal laws, um, but we don't ban the expression because it gives people bad ideas, bad thoughts, bad values. So, okay, there needs to be something else then to justify changing our jurisprudence to accommodate a principle of obscenity. Well, of course, we also know that there's a doctrine under the First Amendment that says there's some types of expression that we don't value as much 
as we do most expression. And therefore, when speech falls within one of these categories of low-value speech, speech that doesn't really promote what the First Amendment's about, then we're willing to allow the government to have a greater discretion in regulating such expression. And examples of that would be false statements of fact or threats or fighting words and so on. And so you might say, that person who's advancing this new argument might say, well, obscenity has low value. And so, okay, I'd want to say, well, why? I mean, what is it that gives it low value? I understand why false statements of fact have low value because it's hard to see why they would possibly contribute in any useful way to public debate. They simply need to be corrected. And there's an argument that one can make about, say, threats, which is a little more subtle, which says that threats don't work the way we like speech to work. Speech is supposed to appeal in some way to the cognitive processes, to persuade people, to cause them to think about something. But threat causes individuals to behave in the way that the person making the threat wants because they are coercive. And they're really more like twisting someone's arm than they are like speech. And even though they are coercive, I'm sorry, even though they are words in form, they really are coercion, in fact. And so we shouldn't let the fact that they are expression technically blind us to the fact that they don't really operate quite the way we think free speech should operate under the First Amendment. They have a separate and distinct impact on individuals. They're intended to have a separate and distinct impact on individuals. And it's not the kind of impact in mechanism that speech is supposed to perform. Fighting words are similar. Fighting words are, are also said to be of low First Amendment value. And part of the explanation for that, apparently, is that when you hurl an epithet or an insult at someone else in a face-to-face -face encounter, that what you're doing is not engaging in persuasion or appeal to the cognitive processes. You're essentially assaulting them. It's like spitting in their eye or pushing them. And that the, the dominant quality of that act, even though it's technically undertaken through the form of expression, is really much more like an assault with the use of physical contact, which isn't so obviously speech. And so we can regulate it to a greater extent. So the proponent of regulating pornography may say, pornography, or obscenity, the constitutional name of the doctrine, is like that. Because after all, it appeals to the prurient interest in sex. And what does that mean? Well, my First Amendment professor when I was in law school, Harry Calvin, uh, said that what it means is it makes you horny. Right? It has a physiological effect. Whether you like it or not, it will turn you on. And it's like my putting my hand on your thigh and caressing it. It will have an effect on many people, I hope, <laughs> on some people at least, that's not about cognitive processes or persuasion or thought. It's a physiological response. And in that sense, one can argue, well, obscenity is really more like the stroke on the thigh than it is like 
real speech under the First Amendment. And in that sense, one could say it's kind of like the fighting word or the threat. That its predominant effect is to create a reaction in the listener or the reader that's different from what speech is supposed to do. Well, even if we concede that's the case, and I think that is the essence of what we mean by obscenity, that's why speech about sex is not obscene, but speech that somehow has the effect of turning you on is obscene, then the question is, well, why do we care about that? It's easy to understand why we care about coercion. It's easy to understand why we care about assault. But why do we care about the fact that obscenity is sexually excited. Why is that somehow a reason to separate it out from other speech about sex? Because there's nothing about sexual arousal in and of itself, unlike coercion or assault, that seems to say that's really a bad thing. We shouldn't allow people to be sexually aroused. It's a bad thing to do to other people. Or, or, since we're talking about consenting adults, it's a bad thing for people to allow others voluntarily to do them. That seems kind of peculiar. But in fact, there's an explanation for this. And for this understanding of obscenity. And it goes back a very long way. It goes back over 1,500 years. And if you go back and read Augustine, who really shaped the Western Christian tradition of understanding sexuality, central to his thought and to Christian thought became the idea that the reason for the fall was the fact that Adam and Eve engaged in sex. Not in the Bible, but it's what Augustine figured out. And in Eden, people had complete control, according to Augustine, of their genitals just as we have complete control of our hands. And the curse of the fall was that we were afflicted with lust and we lost control of our sexual organs. And it's therefore incumbent upon man to learn to discipline and control sexual desire in order ever to earn the opportunity for redemption. It's where we get notions like celibacy of priests and where we see individuals uh, beating themselves to prevent them from feeling sexual urges. So what's the, the, the relevance of all this? To me, the relevance of it is this. The entire doctrine of obscenity, if you think about it carefully, ultimately goes back to a very specific sectarian religious view about sexuality, a view that's not even shared now by most Christians, but nonetheless is the root of the notion that sexual arousal is itself evil and indecent and immoral. And the reason we define obscenity the way we do is because lurking somewhere deep in our path is this notion that sexual arousal in and of itself is immoral and indecent evil. And that to me violates not only the free speech clause of the First Amendment, but the establishment clause of the First Amendment. It's essentially saying that because of a particular, narrow, rather peculiar religious belief that the government will prohibit 
individuals who don't share that belief from engaging in activities, including expression, simply because it's offensive to that particular religious view. And that, to me, is a pretty profound violation of the Constitution. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted uh, to be here, uh, particularly for me today. It's a wonderful invitation. Uh, when I uh, first was a member of the Federalist Society some many years ago, we could have met in a broom closet. And now uh, at my home institution, it fills the largest room in the school. And that's just a wonderful uh, feeling of change from those days when we were such an embattled uh, minority. Today, I'd like to defend the proposition of the First Amendment in the context of obscenity and pornography should apply very differently to the federal government and to the states. The federal government should be subject to severe restrictions under the First Amendment. It should, for instance, be prevented from regulating speech, uh, even uh, uh, obscenity and pornography. In contrast, states should have much more substantial room for regulation to prevent what they regard as substantial harm flowing from that kind of speech. They should be only required to respect the core of the First Amendment that safeguards political speech. We can make legal arguments for this position by attacking the incorporation doctrine, or if one is taken with the current fad for referring to foreign law, by expanding what the European Union calls the margin of appreciation, the greater autonomy subsidiary governments should enjoy in regulatory decisions. But instead, I want to offer an analysis that is less text or precedent-based and one that speaks more directly to a conference on law and morality. Obviously, morality is very complicated, and my talk will begin with just two simple premises, one about morality's content and one about its epistemology. First, good societies are concerned with protecting both liberty and the conditions for human flourishing. In a just society, people should have freedom to act, but their legal and social structure should also help sustain the conditions for the flourishing of family life, friendship, and other social goods. In short, we'd like to prevent freedom from turning into what older political philosophers called license, think of the kind that deranges other social goods. My second premise is that the line between liberty and license is very hard to draw. The reason is that the consequences of freedoms and the restrictions on freedom in the social realm are difficult to assess. For instance, to take an example discussed by others on this panel, what are the effects of pornography? Is it harmful in that it encourages violence against women, or more subtly, but as importantly, does it lead to a coarsening of sensibilities that unravels family life? Or to the contrary, does it actually offer some benefits from some men as a substitute for violence and perhaps an outlet for satisfying fantasies, the pursuit of which in other ways would actually dissolve families? And I use my colleague, Professor Koblen, has just asked, can a state police pornography well without counterproductively sweeping in material that may help women preserve and start families? I have, as I'm sure all of us do, some hunches, or what political scientists would call priors, about the answers to these questions. And in this case, they are closer to Professor Koppelman's than to Mrs. Shafley's. But even a law professor must, on occasion, admit that he is fallible in his social and moral intuitions. 
Because of such all-too-human fallibility, a very desirable feature of constitutional design is a structure that helps us calculate together the consequences of our social policies, providing us more evidence than just our intuitions. The need for such a mechanism for moral and social discovery seems to me the decisive moral argument for a federalist approach to the First Amendment. If states are left the responsibility for setting social policy, representative legislatures can make the hard decisions between liberty and license. Moreover, these legislatures, unlike federal judges, are subject to some discipline. So long as constitutional law protects free movement and the free flow of core political speech among the states, individuals are free to exit if the balance between liberty and license gets out of kilter. But most importantly for the purpose of the discussion here, federalism creates feedback information on a range of possible balances of state experiments with different social policies. Thus, unlike a system which the Supreme Court enforces some national rule of its own devise on pornography and obscenity, we are able to make comparisons and learn about the consequences by reviewing the actions of many relatively similar jurisdictions. In my view, the possibility of civic learning from federalism are greater today than they were in the age of the framers or even 20 years ago, which we have the dawn of the greatest age of social science empiricism, the systematic study of social consequences the world has ever known. The driving force in the rise of empiricism is information technology, often referred to as Moore's Law. As a result, computer and speed and memory have been doubling at, uh, in every 18 months. The fruits of more laws laws are not just fancier gadgets, but potentially an ever more informed policy calculus. Because the expanded memory allows more and more facts to be collected, and the expanded computer power allows social sciences to make precise measurements of the effect of different legal regimes. Over 70 years ago, Brandeis said that federalism created laboratories of democracy. That was hyperbole in his day, hyperbole in his day, but today technological innovation brings it to pass. Now researchers run scores of regressions on data collected from different legal regimes, and their results are assessed in both specialized uh, blogs and uh, more generally, and even in generalized uh, newspapers. But this kind of more scientific approach to social policy becomes a reality only if states are allowed to use their different laws, and then these can be evaluated in our, I guess, what we might call our silicon test tubes of today. Just as the technological acceleration of our age makes the analysis of the consequences of different legal regimes in states ever more sophisticated, it makes the need for flexible responses permitted by federalism ever more important. Let me continue with the example of pornography. Probably within 15 or certainly within 25 years, technological change will permit intense interactive pornography in virtual reality. That change in degree, if not in kind, in the nature of pornography may lead to a different trade-off between its benefits and costs. Supreme Court case law is simply not an effective method for determining what legal norms we should apply to this kind of disruptive technology or to the many other issues that will be raised by technological acceleration in the years ahead. The problem with case law in this regard is that principles fabricated by a few insulated individuals can hardly be expected to take account of the future. Moreover, it's necessarily formal legal logic frequently makes it insensitive to changes to context and consequence. In contrast, a federalist structure for the First Amendment will permit states to react creatively to technological change. The costs and benefits of their divergent responses can then be measured. 
To be sure, even this Federalist conception of the First Amendment, federal courts have a role to play. It's important that states be required to respect the core of political speech so their citizens can be aware of the debate of social policies. And the court must also craft doctrines that will permit the state's autonomy to regulate and punish their own citizens while curtailing the effects of that regulation on the citizens of other states. It's worth noting that a program of federalism has implications for many of the matters, in my view, discussed at the conference, other than simply the First Amendment and obscenity. A federalist approach to other moral issues would reject a Supreme Court decision that interprets the 14th Amendment to permit same-sex marriage. But it would also propose President Bush's federal marriage amendment, prohibiting states from recognizing same-sex marriage. As uh, Nelson Lund and I have noted in an article whose reasoning parallels much of this, laws affecting marriage, marriage have varied among the states, and they, they varied over time. And this is also the type of area in which a competitive federalism provides an effective mechanism for conducting experiments that may mature into a lasting consensus. In closing, let me suggest that the federal solution to the role of morality in the First Amendment and other areas of law has two other strong reasons to recommend it. First, the Federalist approach tends to diffuse tension among people with different moral views. Instead of having a national rule which alienates those with minority views, different jurisdictions generate different rules, and those who feel strongly they want to live their lives under such rules can move there. They can create their own scripts, as was said this morning. Secondly, it also tamps down on partisanship by creating a structure that facilitates and focuses on the study of consequences of various principles. It is all too easy, in my view, for people, particularly partisans, to adhere to principles and then to dismiss those with opposing ideas because between opposing positions sketched out by principle, there often seems to be a gap unbridgeable by persuasion. This sense of incommensurability that comes from focusing on abstract principles is an important cause of our culture wars today. It leads to angry divisions where each side questions others' good faith and often dismisses their opponents as religious sectarians or simply crazy. But a focus on consequences can sometimes change people's minds. By permitting the expression of different legal regimes, federalism creates evidence about these regimes' effects. And unlike personal intuitions about morality, the evidence from these different regimes is something we have in common, and thus it is a potential source for generating consensus. Operating federalism as a discovery machine in matters of morality accords, in my view, with the best of Western tradition that emphasizes skepticism and humility over certainty. Over 300 years ago, Oliver Cromwell urged his colleagues in Parliament to remember that even in matters of religion, they could be badly mistaken. Fifty years ago, Learned Hand noted that the spirit of liberty is one that is not too certain of itself. A Federalist approach to the First Amendment seems to me a concrete manifestation of that spirit, and one particularly appropriate to an age of accelerating technological change and the many new moral issues it will raise, issues where our initial moral intuitions may all too easily and all too humanly be wrong. Thanks very much. Uh, 
we have a lot of time for questions. Uh, please come to the front with your questions uh, while you're uh, making your way up to the front. I'd like to give the panelists an opportunity to respond to some of the comments of their co-panelists, and we'll do it in the, the order of the initial remarks. Uh, Mrs. Schlafly? All right. First of all, I uh, would object to anybody ever relating me to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose, whose con contempt for women and children is shown by the fact that he forced his mistress to abandon their five illegitimate children at birth and leave them on the doorstep of a foundling home because they were inconvenient to have around and interfere with his writing. He was a jerk of the first magnitude. I would have nothing. Secondly, in regard to the Equal Rights Amendment, if there ever were an example of a small group trying to enforce its view of life, its social policy, its morality on everybody else through the Constitution, that's what it was, uh, because the radical feminists had their view and they were determined to change uh, not only our laws but our attitudes, and fortunately they failed and were rejected after a 10-year battle. Now, on this panel today, we heard a great deal of sociological discussion about pornography. I think that would be very interesting in a conference on sociology, uh, but I thought this panel was about the First Amendment. And it is perfectly clear, it is historically clear, that the First Amendment was never intended to include any right of obscenity. Uh, that's made clear in Supreme Court decisions. Uh, all 13 states even had laws against blasphemy at the time the First Amendment was adopted. And it was the Warren Court that came along and determined to change our morality for the worse by enforcing upon us policies about pornography that overrode all the states, all the juries, all the local people, all the uh, private regulation that we had in order to enforce their term and to put obscenity in the, in the Constitution, in the First Amendment. And I think we should recognize what they did in changing our society. It is the Supreme Court enforcing immorality upon us. So now we have the situation that woe to anybody who wants to uh, say a prayer before a football game. Uh, woe to any third grade child who wants to say the Pledge of Allegiance with under God in it in, the, in, in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, woe to anybody who wants to uh, post the Ten Commandments because we suspect their motives. Uh, woe to anybody who wants to mention a candidate 60 days before the election. But if you want to be obscenity, then it's a green light for you. You can say anything you want. And that's what the Supreme Court has done. Professor Koppelman. The question, I mean, really just as a matter of technical First Amendment law, is whether it's possible to devise a rule that's responsible for, responsive to the real concern about pornography. And uh, here I, I think that I'd have to disagree with Jeff Stone. Uh, I don't think that you can explain the prohibition of pornography just by invoking Christianity when, uh, I mean, that Christianity's a constant through American history and the concern about pornography 
pornography waxes and wanes. You get this real, the anti-pornography laws really only get going after the Civil War, but the country had been Christian all along. Something else is going on. Uh, I think that there is a real concern here. The real concern just isn't reducible to a workable legal rule unless you say, well, you know, open season, it's okay to prohibit serious works of art and literature because a uh, local jury finds them pornographic. And uh, there is a problem with uh, John McGinnis's suggestion we should just be concerned about core political speech. The question of what counts as core political speech is itself a controversial political question. So uh, gay rights advocacy, for example, was suppressed as obscene for a good deal of American history, and it's now one of the pressing issues in contemporary American politics. Um, first, I want to correct um, Mr. Schlafly's statement about the history of, of obscenity. It's simply inaccurate. Uh, the fact is, no colony prohibited obscenity. It is true they prohibited blasphemy and they prohibited libel, but they did not prohibit obscenity. There were only two prosecutions that were ever successful for obscenity before 1790 in England, um, and they were regarded as basically political prosecutions. Uh, the fact is that the first prosecution for obscenity in the United States or in the North, North America didn't occur until 1815, and there was no view on the framers of the First Amendment that obscenity or sexually explicit material or sexually related material was unprotected by the First Amendment. And if you don't think there was sexually explicit material, you know nothing about the world of the 18th century. And the reality is, as this goes to uh, Andrew Koppelman's point, that in the United States, obscenity didn't actually become an issue until after the Civil War. And it's a relatively, from that standpoint, recent phenomenon. The United States lived for the better part of a century without any regulations of obscenity of any consequence whatsoever. Um, and so the notion that this is somehow deeply historically embedded in our constitutional culture is simply inaccurate. Uh, and second of all, I guess I would say with respect to the issue of federalism, um, that I think is a general proposition, um, what John McGinnis says uh, has some merit to it, but the fundamental question is, of course, um, what is, what did the, the, the 14th Amendment, what did the Civil War do in changing the conception of the United States? Clearly, it imposed upon the states restrictions that did not exist earlier. And the issue really is what are the fundamental rights of American citizens as opposed to citizens of individual states as interpreted through the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, or the Privilege and Immunities Clause, or the 13th Amendment, and other amendments have been enacted since. And I think almost everybody would agree that what you're looking for is a core definition of what are the fundamental rights that all citizens of the United States should have under the Constitution. And you can't answer that question by simply saying federalism. Federalism is there. It's a part of American law and constitutional structure. But it doesn't tell you whether the First Amendment should be limited to political speech or not. That's just John McGinnis's theory as to what's core. But he has to explain it and justify it. And that, as Andrew Koppelman said, doesn't come from anywhere. So yes. Yes. Uh, well, let me let me add that uh, point. Uh, uh, the the difference, of course, between I think Je Professor Stone has offered us a difference between uh, political speech and uh, and pornography and obscenity. When he agreed that one could look at 
pornography and obscenity is like the hand on the thigh. I don't think that's the way one looks, uh, regards political speech. Political speech is an appeal to reason. I think we can make a distinction like that. Indeed, I would say once one agrees that uh, a pornography or obscenity, at least, is like a hand on the thigh, it becomes hard to understand why we can't regulate that like all sorts of other sensory matters, right? We don't uh, say that we can't regulate all sorts of other things so long as they aren't speech, so long even if they're pleasurable. Like the, the government can regulate uh, all sorts of drugs you put into your body, for instance, although those are pleasurable and may have many uh, nice effects. And indeed, I think that distinction that Professor Stone has drawn is a distinction that we're now actually seeing in PET scans. We actually see that different parts of the mind light up with respect to pornography than when you read some tome by Thomas Aquinas. Um, so I think that is a particularly uh, uh, plausible uh, distinction. And moreover, political speech seems to, as in, in my uh, talk, has an important function. It has an important function to make a system of competitive federalism work so people can know what's going on in other uh, jurisdictions, both because so they can use exit rights. And so we will generate information and discussion nationally about the effects of different regimes. So on both of those bases, I think it makes very much a sense to be able to make that distinction. And I don't even think one needs, with respect to Professor Koppelman's point, we're making these distinctions. I think I don't even think one needs to recur to, to uh, Father Stewart's view. I know it when I see it, the difference between politics and pornography. Uh, to take the example of uh, gay rights, any discussion of, of sex about should we be able to have sex, is, it seems to me, can be distinguished by people from depictions of intense sexual activity. That seems to me a different uh, matter. We can allow all sorts of discussion of sex. That's not pornographic. This panel, for instance, isn't pornographic, at least not yet. <laughs> uh, and so that's... The... <laughs> And so that's the, that's the distinction we're trying to draw. It makes a distinction that seems to me perfectly consonant with uh, prevent to protecting a competitive federalism, which has all the advantages I described. Okay, let's move on to uh, questions, which hopefully will not be pornographic. Uh, we'll, we'll start on this side. If we could start, uh, just a reminder, please state your name and affiliation. Uh, please keep your questions quick, and please uh, remember to make them questions. We'll start on this side. I'm Dick Rolving, and I'm a theologian from Columbus, Ohio. And uh, Professor Stone gave a terrible caricature of St. Augustine and of Christianity. There isn't, there isn't any Christian church in the world that thinks it's wrong to stir up someone's sexuality. It's only who and where and when. And St. Augustine never thought Adam and Eve could not engage in sex. There would be no human race if they could not engage in sex. You completely distorted the whole tradition. Professor Stone, reaction? <laughs> Read Augustine. It's wrong. Okay. Next question over here. 
Thank you. I'm uh, David Wagner, Regent University. Augustine sure gets a lot of the blame, but I'm going to suggest uh, an even older source of the, uh, the tradition that, that, and, and a more acceptable one in a secular democracy for this uh, suspect character of, um, of obscenity as defined as sort of the thigh on the, the hand on the thigh sort of thing. And that is civic republicanism, the old republics. Uh, and it is simply the notion that political deliberation which is at, at the core of the First Amendment, even if it isn't all the First Amendment is about, it just does not go very well when people, when people are turned on, as Professor Stone put it. You know, people once turned on can then be turned off and then engage in political debate, but the pornography has a tendency to instill images that, that, that have an coarsening effect, then the turning on can, can, can appear, can, can come back at unpredictable intervals. In other words, a connection has, has been seen in the Civil Republican tradition between uh, self-mastery and self excuse me, between self-government and self-government, okay? Between self-government in the sense of self-mastery and self-government in the sense of democracy. So, comment. <laughs> Responses? Mm -hmm. no? Gosh. <laughs> well, I, the, uh... I think that there's a tension between uh, civic republican tradition and the idea of free speech. I, Rousseau's letter to D'Alembert, we were concerned about the theater. We sh shouldn't have theaters uh, at all. Um, and I think we've just got a fundamentally different society in which I mean, if uh, what you're trying to do is make people virtuous by causing them to think certain things, that's in tension with the idea that people can think what they like. I think what we have that I think the civil republicans didn't have experience with is a pluralistic society that actually seems to function pretty well. It turns out that you don't need to have the kinds of rigid controls on people in order to make a republic work. I, I take that this, in some ways, this is the argument of Federalist 10, that it's possible to have all kinds of views out there and uh, all kinds of views check each other. Um, but I think the most fundamental thing is you've got to decide whether you're going to have free speech or not. If you're going to have free speech, you've already given up on civic republicanism. Okay, sir. Uh, Warren Norad, Texas Wesleyan. Uh, Professor Stone, in your hypothetical, when you were talking, you, you talked about somebody coming in and, and from scratch saying, let's have a doctrine of obscenity. Shouldn't the first question be, well, are we at a state level or a national level? If we are at a national level, then where do you get a, where in the Constitution do you get the authority to regulate obscenity? That should be the first question, I would think. Um, if you if you find that the implied power somewhere, then I think that you would look toward history to figure out why the First Amendment includes that. The British were never trying to stop anybody from, at least to my knowledge, maybe you can correct my history, but did the British at some point try to say, no, you can't have any naked cards passed around? Or was the First Amendment and freedom of speech passed for strictly political purposes? So I would think that you would send that right down to the states, the states would deal with it, and that would be the end of the discussion. Quite frankly, I, I think that the whole issue of, of it, of obscenity in the First Amendment is, is ridiculous because we do have the history. We don't have to ask the question. We do have to ask the question of when, when you do have the line drawing, but when the line is clear and it's just political speech, it seems to me we have upside down day at the Supreme Court when you, whenever Playboy can't be censored, McCain-Feingold stays in the books. 
can you explain to me how we've gotten to this situation where where we don't regulate political where we regulate political speech specifically, but we don't regulate that which is clearly not uh, political speech? Well, as to the last part of your question, um, the regulation of first of all non-political speech, including obscenity is regulated today. The question is not whether it is regulated or not. It is regulated. In fact, it can be prohibited if it's obscene, although Mr. Slavsky doesn't like the definition. Um, but it certainly, if it's deemed obscene, it can be prohibited. And when we talk about you can regulate political speech, referring, for example, to things like campaign contributions and expenditures, and on the one hand, and obscenity on the other, it seems anomalous if you say, well, we're not protecting political speech, but we're protecting some forms of sexually explicit speech that aren't obscene. But the explanation for that is not that there's a greater valuation of sexually explicit but not obscene speech than political speech. The explanation is that the court is interested in the particular nature of the limitation on speech. So a limitation on political speech that focuses on the point of view of a speaker, that attempts to regulate speech because the government doesn't like the points of view expressed or believes they are bad policy or believes they will lead people to engage in undesirable conduct or even lead people to engage in criminal conduct would be per se unconstitutional under the law today. And regulation of expression that is sexual but not obscene is seen by the court as essentially attempting to regulate speech because it will impart to individuals views and attitudes and moral positions and so on that the legislature doesn't like. So what you have to ask is not just whether it's political versus whether it's sexual, it's rather whether the government is regulating the speech because of the particular message that it's communicating. And that's the slice that the court is most interested in. And whether it's facially political or facially artistic or scientific or literary or sexual, which usually falls into one of those other categories, is of less interest to the court, in my view rightly, than whether the government is trying to regulate particular points of view because the majority thinks particular points of view on any matters are inappropriate for people to hear. And that's not what they're doing, at least arguably not what they're doing in the campaign finance situation. I should say, by the way, I don't think campaign finance laws are constitutional. But taking the devil's advocate position here, the reason why some justices believe them okay is because they're not regulating particular points of view. They're not picking out some views as good and some views as bad and saying you can't advocate the single tax, or you can't advocate abortion, or you can't advocate that the war in Iraq is good or bad. And that's the slice that the court's looking at. Just add a point about the political, non-political distinction, and I just take a theme from uh, republicanism. If what politics is about is that we're going to deliberate together about how to live, one of the things that we've got to be able to present to one another is what are reasons for thinking that a given way of living is attractive. Now, something that we argued about this morning is, and had a debate about here, is the value of homosexual sex. And one of the things that we argue about is whether it has value. The reason why you've got a gay rights movement is because there are an awful lot of people who weren't raised in households that valued homosexual sex, but they came to be persuaded that it had value, and that has affected their political behavior. An awful lot of them picked up that idea by stumbling across gay pornography and saying, oh, 
and uh, they uh, acquired that point of view in a way that uh, they just could not have acquired by deadly serious earnest treatises about homosexual sex. Uh, next question. Uh, should be. Speak. I want to thank Professor Coleman for uh, recognizing the misogyny that's uh, inherent in a lot of pornography. Because it's not coincidental that the only person actually looking pornography is female. Because if you look at uh, attitudes, women consistently oppose pornography more than men do. And I really want to take issue with the notion that there is no documented harm. Uh, and I think where that comes from is the same problem that we have in the law is possession of, of, of pornography is difficult and it can be on a sliding scale and sloppy and go from erotica, which you'd consider just a uh, portrayal possibly of nudity, to pornography, which might implicate acts to obscenity, which is legally, um, which you can censor. Where the notion, as far as I can tell, based on the review of the really, really tedious social science on this, uh, comes from both the 1970 President's Commission and Kaczynski's work in Denmark. The President's Commission looked at what we might call erotica. It didn't look at anything that had violence in it, and it didn't look at long-term effects. Uh, Kaczynski's work lumped violent rape with exhibitionism and peeping toms, and that's where he got his notion that the legalization of pornography also coincided with the reduction of violent sex crime. Actually, not even violent sex crime, he just called it sex crime. Um, there are a number of social scientists working independently, and they are um, social scientists, not social conservatives, who have documented at least some... Uh, potential harm associated with pornography. You can't test actual violence from pornography. It's not ethical to expose someone to pornography and then observe whether or not he's going to rape a woman. You, you just can't do it. If you could ask a question, that would okay. be um, Well, the question is, I've only got two more points. Uh, what you they, just stick no, with the question for now. The point is that they claim there was no harm, and I'm trying to say that's factually false based on the social science that is there. What they did find is that uh, a man looking at typical pornography showed a marked increase in acceptance of rape, accept, rape acceptance myths, willingness to let rapists off, and willingness to punish women specifically, and these were controlled social experiments. So I think it is not, it's just actually false to say that there's no harm and that it has a prophylactic effect. Okay. Um, well, I've got an article in the Columbia Law Review, uh, I think the last year or the year before, I'm not sure which, uh, that uh, spends a several pages going through the social science data and uh, so I can uh, I can't go through all of that here I mean, and you're right there are two there are really two kinds of data you can't actually expose people to pornography and then follow them around to see if they rape anybody that's not uh, an option uh, what you can do is you can do lab studies in which you expose people to pornography and then you survey their attitudes before and after and you get some bad effects on attitudes now, those are short-term attitudinal changes. We don't know what they mean in terms of behavior. But you're right. Some of the attitudes that uh, you find is troubling. Uh, the other, I, mean, I think that the more reliable evidence of what actually happens in the world, we've got surveys of very large numbers of actual men. 
and you ask them what magazines they read, and then you ask them about their behavior. And in anonymous surveys, people are willing to be remarkably forthcoming about their behavior. You have these surveys found a remarkable number of men who would actually admit in these anonymous surveys to having raped somebody. Uh, it's really extraordinary. And uh, you found that uh, there was a correlation between consumption of pornography and violence against women in fewer than 1% of the men who had other pathological characteristics that were disclosed by the surveys. So there's some connection there, and in fewer than 1% of men that it's there. The other bit of data that uh, I was relying on is uh, it's a fairly recent survey, uh, I can give you the citation, that found that in areas where the internet is readily available, and those are parts of the country where we can be quite confident that a lot of people are looking at a lot of pornography, the, the rate of sexual assault goes down. Not other crimes, only sexual assault. So the story's a complicated story. Uh, I, uh, I'll make a comment. Uh, most of the cases of uh, really vicious crimes, if you read what happened, you'll find they were users of hardcore pornography, like Scott uh, Peterson, who murdered his pregnant wife. You've got to read through to the end of the story to find that out, uh, because it's frequently hidden. But most of the really vicious criminals were users of hardcore pornography. Orrin, can I add a thought too? I think the problem with this is the wrong question. Um, that under the First Amendment, it's quite clear that virtually all speech that anybody in society wants to regulate causes harm. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume, regardless of the evidence, that probably it's the case that obscenity causes harms of a whole range of, of types, in the same way that uh, speech that um, is unpatriotic can cause harm. People who criticize the surge in Iraq are emboldening the insurgents, and that causes a harm. Publishing the Pentagon Papers caused harms. Um, revealing what happened in Abu Ghraib causes harms. Speech isn't worth thinking about prohibiting if it doesn't cause harms. But the fact that speech caused harms is not enough to justify restricting it, because it also has value. And that's why I think the focus of the question has to be not on the harm issue, but on the value question. And all the attention that gets focused on the issue of harm, I think, is ultimately much to do about nothing on the issue of obscenity. Not because it doesn't cause harm, but because I'll concede causes harm. It's not the relevant question. And I guess you think that reciting the Pledge of Allegiance causes harm, and therefore we should ban it. I believe the state reciting the Pledge of Allegiance when it says under God? Yes. I, I believe the state has no legitimate justification in having students on school property saying under God. Because the Establishment Clause suggests the government is not supposed to be promoting religion. Yes. It, it and that's was, not about the same types of harm we're talking about here. It's a different constitutional issue. But the issue is whether the state can appropriately have students in a school setting say under God. And I would say that's not an appropriate thing for the state to do. Let's, uh, let's go back to the questions. Next. Uh, my, <laughs> my name is Jack Etheridge from Ohio. This question is uh, for Mrs. Shafley. And I understood Professor Stones, and you modified your statement somewhat just in your last comments, uh, understanding that there's really no significant moral distinction associated with this obscenity per se. 
And the question that I have that I'd like you to comment on is that it seems to me that the the key issue here is that obscenity almost by definition divides sexuality and, and depiction of sexuality from human relationship in general and marriage in particular. And I'd like for you to comment on that in light of your previous comments uh, on the court's decisions on this line. In terms of the importance of how obscenity separates our view of sexuality from human relationship. Well, I, I think it does have a bad effect, and I would refer you to my, my book called Pornography's Victims, which I did not make up the stories. They were taken from the government commission on pornography of several years ago, and I excerpted out uh, only the testimony of the victims, uh, which was to show that pornography is not a victimless crime. I think it does have an effect on people. But again, uh, the consensus of this country was that uh, we like to have a decent society. And it was the Supreme Court activist judges misusing the First Amendment that changed the culture of our country. And that is what I object to. Uh, Just like the Pledge of Allegiance was adopted a half century ago by the Congress. Millions of kids have said it in school. And the idea that some judge should come along on the left coast and suddenly after 50 years discover that it's unconstitutional is something we should not put up with. Hi, I'm Jed Brinton from Yale. Um, I, I just wanted to hear, I guess this is for the whole panel, um, your thoughts in terms of whether or not uh, the issue of uh, addiction might change the dynamic when it comes to pornography versus other, other related issues. Um, and I guess this depends on your theory of addiction as regards to the will, but I mean, if it were the case that you could demonstrate that pornography in a large percentage of the population you know, had a very high, uh, a strong ability to, you know, create addiction in which, you know, you in, induced a situation where second order desires just weren't, you know, weren't functioning like they normally do in our, you know, calculus of the will. If that is your theory of addiction, then um, would, that, would that make a difference that you would find relevant? Well, I, there's no question there's anecdotal evidence that some readers of pornography become transfixed by it. They lose all interest in relationships with actual people. I mean, there are anecdotes that uh, that happens. I'm not sure that addiction is a helpful metaphor for the problem because uh, I mean, it's not there's it, this happens with all kinds of things. I think, you know, probably preeminently in this country with the watching of television. Uh, so I'm not sure that pornography is particularly unusual here. There are all kinds of ways and with activities that lots of people engage in without harming themselves. But uh, there are some people who get carried away with it. Uh, you know, the law faculty is, uh, you know, and probably the faculty of every law school is populated by people who read too much, and so that uh, cuts them off from relationships with actual human beings. And you know, we. So I'm just not sure that pornography is particularly unusual in this regard. I mean, my, my, I mean, I think you. I think I agree with Andy. You have to show the addiction has had some causation, other than you just have addicted to more of this stuff, right? But if you actually, I, but I think your hypothetical is one, and that's why my talk tried to emphasize a disruptive technology. I don't think it's so crazy to think about 10, 15 years in the future, a kind of brave new world scenario, which is is portrayed, of course, 
uh, as, 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 as very addictive as a kind of the feelies in some sense, and that actually could have some secondary consequences, and that's just an example of why I think we need to have a structure that takes consequences like that into account that may be changing uh, in the future. And so your question seems to me precisely the right question, as so long as we then add to it that there actually will be some bad effects you know, of, of, of not uh, be uh, the kind of effects that you might see in drugs or other kinds of effects that could happen in this sense. And I think we need to be open to that, particularly because I don't think we've taken on board enough for constitutional law generally the, the problem of living in an age of accelerating technology. Next question. John Baker, LSU. Uh, my question is for John McGinnis, and it's not about pornography. John, uh, as you know, I agree with you on federalism. And I just wonder if the court were willing to go along with your proposal about more experimentation in the states, don't you think we would have to have the court also rediscover the territorial limits of states? I mean, because of long-arm statutes and extraterritorial jurisdiction, we now have some states indicting people in one state who've never gone into their state because they sent something over the Internet. I, ex I exactly agree with you. In fact, I think I said something brief, very briefly about it. I'm very grateful for that question. I can expand on it. And I think one thing it emphasizes is we're not really talking about states' rights. We're talking about the best distribution of power for the federal government and for individuals. And that sometimes means the federal government has to has to constrain states when, it try, when they try to apply their law extraterritorially to publishers or individuals in other states. And how the Supreme Court, so as I suggested, the Supreme Court would have an important role to play, well, it's a kind of conflict of laws role to play in deciding what rule should apply. Oddly enough, and I haven't thought through this uh, idea, it might actually, though, suggest that the court is absolutely wrong to say the state can't punish someone for possessing pornography in their home. That the state actually may be able to punish. That's clearly all involved with respect to respect to state activity in its own citizen. Where one worries is the effect of its rules on publishers and the ability of people to seize things elsewhere. And so that becomes a crucial part, a conflict of law structure for competitive federalism to work. And I'd like to see the court do that. I think there's one reason we might think the court might do better on that. At least seems to me more of a neutral principles uh, idea. The, the court is stepping back from substance and just deciding who has jurisdiction to regulate. Next question. Hi, my name is Julie Borowski. I'm from Notre Dame. I'd like to ask sort of a test quiz question to draw out the philosophical differences of each of these legal positions. Um, the Supreme Court in Frederick v. Morse is very likely to revisit the case of Fraser versus Bethel School District, which famously allowed restrictions on school speech that was obscene, vulgar, lewd, or plainly offensive, which I think is a particular type of this assembly speech that we're getting at. Now, would the implications... I'm getting some strange looks. I'm having um, trouble hearing. It's very hard to hear up here. That's why you're. Yeah. Oh. It's not your fault. It's across the board. We can't hear each other very well either. So. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. The sound system's not good about this. Well, basically, if you were in the Supreme Court right now and revisiting the restriction on any lewd or offensive student speech which I think is a particular type of the speech we're discussing, which directly implicates the rights of others in it, which is a 
important issue that Professor Koppelman brought up with exploitation and Professor Stone brought up with his metaphor, how would you act in that very specific application and would you espouse any limits on the First Amendment and if so, which one in the context of school speech in public schools? That's lewd. Uh, it's, it's certainly more complex. I mean, in some ways, one of the basic arguments in favor of free speech is that when you censor what citizens can hear, you are treating adults as if they were children. And it's not appropriate to treat adults as if they were children. Now, there's a corollary to that claim, which is that it is appropriate to treat children as if they were children. And that suggests that schools have at least somewhat greater leeway within the school to regulate the speech that happens within the school. So I think the case that you're talking about involved uh, someone giving a vulgar sexually suggestive speech at a school assembly, and he was sanctioned for it, and the Supreme Court upheld it. Um, I, not, it's not possible to go through a detailed treatise of what the law should be in this area, but the idea that the First Amendment has diminished force in the public schools and schools have the right to regulate speech that happens with, at least within them. There's a further question about whether they can regulate speech off campus, but at least within the schools, uh, that seems to me to make sense. It's okay to treat children as if they were children. Let me just say one thing. I think the real way of dealing with this is to give people more exit rights from schools, right? If we have a system of vouchers, again, then it should be absolutely up to the school to make those decisions, and we'll have a competition on that axis as well. What's the appropriate line, which I think is the court is just not going to get in any sense right, but the reason it has to do that is because of our system of government schools, rather than simply having governments pay for school spending. Uh, well, I would like to agree with that, but uh, going beyond that, uh, the public schools are paid for by the taxpayers, and uh, parents should have uh, rights over the care and upbringing of their children. And what we have had in the last couple of years uh, is the schools adopting the policy they can teach the children anything they want to about sex or anything else, regardless of whether it may be offensive to the values of the parents. And we had the Ninth Circuit saying that the right of parents does not extend beyond the threshold of the school door. We have court decisions forcing children to watch a homosexual video, uh, forcing children to watch a homosexual skit uh, that had uh, indecent uh, skits uh, participated in by minors, uh, forcing the school, uh, forcing the children to submit to a course on Islam where they dressed up like Muslims and used Muslim dames and pretended they were Muslims uh, and forcing the children to answer all kinds of nosy questionnaires about sex, drugs, and suicide. And uh, it, we have a matter, we have a real conflict between the right of the schools to do whatever they want in contrast to what parents want for their children. And I think the court should be held to account on that. Next question. Hi I'm, Hi, I'm Ryan Brown from Oklahoma City University, and it seems about once a year or so we get um, an artist or a musician that always tries to really sort of be provocative and push the limits of sort of decency in the United States society. Um, two recent examples, which I sort of 
I'm curious as to how the different the public has responded differently, and uh, the courts have responded differently. For one, is um, a few years back when we had the painting of the Virgin Mary that had cow dung smeared on it, and it seemed only a, the government did not seem particularly concerned about about that one. I could be wrong. Uh, and the other one was, of course, uh, with the Houston's. Uh, wardrobe malfunction at the last uh, couple Super Bowls ago. Janet Jackson, I'm sorry. Janet Jackson, wrong one. Whitney Houston. Uh, and there was, huge, there was a huge government. Uh, <laughs> there, there was a huge government upset over there. So I suppose the, the question becomes then, where do we draw the line between what is acceptable and what is not? And should the courts, in a particularly great uh, First Amendment case, should they err on the side of free speech or should they err on the side of sort of decency? Gosh, I think the whole panel has been talking about that. I don't know what new there is to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you put it in that simple sense, I think I would argue that the courts should side, err on the side of free speech rather than somebody else's conception of decency enforced through the government. Um, but that doesn't tell you how to decide particular cases. Um, I don't think that there is a very strong interest on the part of the state to enforce what some people believe to be decency in the face of other people's rights to free expression. I think the, for the most part the way you deal with that is you avoid speech when you can that you don't like. You turn the channel um, or you don't look twice. Uh, you don't buy the book. Uh, and that's pretty much the way, for the most part, one should deal with one's own protection from with indecency one doesn't like. As Harlan once said, you know, you avert your eyes. Not always perfect, but it works pretty well most of the time. What gets people upset is that they can't make other people avert their eyes. 